Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. The heads of TikTok, X and Meta testifying on Capitol Hill today. Senators asking what the platforms are doing to prevent kids from harm. A House panel approves the impeachment articles against DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. More on the next steps and what lawmakers are saying on both sides of the aisle. Police in New York City were allegedly attacked by a group of migrants over the weekend. What happened after the arrest is raising some eyebrows. House Speaker Johnson speaking out on the right to believe around the world. How the Chinese Communist Party's human rights abuses come into the spotlight at a summit in Washington. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley again attacking former President Trump for his legal woes. Find out how she's trying to use the legal fees that Trump has to pay against him. A judge rules against a potential $55 billion pay package to Elon Musk. We look at what it means for one of the richest men on earth with the host of NTD Business. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hi, I'm David Lamb, sitting in for Chris Beers. And to begin the show, House Speaker Mike Johnson reportedly saying a bipartisan border deal is officially dead. That's according to Republicans who attended a meeting with him yesterday. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on that and the reactions of lawmakers. Speaker Johnson's office says he'll address the matter at length on Wednesday. He told ABC News just the day before that based on what's been suggested in the bill, it would be a non-starter in the House. Some Democrats are accusing former President Trump of working behind the scenes to derail a potential border deal and that Speaker Johnson is helping him do it. Donald Trump does not want Republicans to solve our problems. He wants the problems to persist so that he can use it for his election campaign. Johnson denies this. He says the first and most important job of the federal government is to protect its citizens. I have talked to, to former President Trump about this issue at length, and, um, and he understands that. He understands that we have a responsibility to do here. Trump acknowledged that some lawmakers blame him for stalling the bill, but said he doesn't mind. I said, that's okay. Please blame it on me. Please. Because they were getting ready to pass a very bad bill. Congressman Pete Aguilar slammed who he called MAGA Republicans in the House and Senate for walking away from a bipartisan deal that he says would strengthen border security, support Israel, and help Ukraine. In the shameful display of partisanship, they are abdicating the responsibility to solve problems on behalf of the American people. Republicans say President Biden can tackle the immigration crisis without a bill, but Biden says he's done all he can without Congress. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And a House panel has approved the articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. He's accused of breaching public trust and refusing to comply with the law. House Republicans voted after midnight Wednesday to advance articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The articles accuse Mayorkas of a willful and systematic refusal to enforce immigration laws and breaching public trust in his claims to Congress that the southern border is secure. The Homeland Security Committee members voted along party lines, with 18 Republicans in favor and 15 Democrats against. Committee leaders told NTD Mayorkas' actions left them with no other option. 
He's, he's breaking the laws Congress has passed. It says shall detain. He's not doing that. Um, in fact, he's turned it upside down, created policies that speed people into the country. Um, he has lied repeatedly when he said that the border is secure and that we have operational control. Uh, and so uh, he's refused to enforce the border. He's lied to Congress. This is the only remedy Republicans have left to do anything uh, between now and the election cycle uh, to try to secure the border. It's a rare move to impeach a cabinet official. The last successful cabinet impeachment was nearly 150 years ago. House Democrats say Republicans haven't presented evidence of impeachable offenses and that the move is political as border security becomes a top issue in this year's election. Well, they don't have any witness who said that there was uh, bribery, treason, or high crimes or misdemeanors that were committed. They brought in three state attorney generals. None of them said anything like that. In fact, one of them didn't even testify about it. Right now, a bipartisan bill is being readied in the Senate that will enact the first major border policy changes in over a decade. Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman said impeachment proceedings aren't the solution to the country's immigration issues. There is no single solution to our complex and broken immigration system. We need to take a large macro-level look at our immigration laws and we need to modernize them. The Republicans in this hearing are talking about how uh, Secretary Mayorkas is violating the law because he is not detaining every single immigrant uh, as they claim the law requires. They don't have the funding. They literally do not have the space to put people in detention. That, and that has been the case long before Secretary Mayorkas took over. The full House could vote on Mayorkas's impeachment as soon as next week. If approved, the charges would go to the Senate for a trial. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And here to speak with us about Mayorkas's impeachment proceedings and all things border is Todd Benzman, Senior National Security Fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies. Todd, welcome. Biden says he's done all that he can to secure the border. You've spent a large amount of time down at the border over the past three years. Is this claim consistent with what you've seen? Has the Biden administration done all that it can? No, of course not. Um, the Biden administration has uh, wittingly pursued a policy of no detention and no deportation. Uh, when you have policies that are like that, which, by the way, is the first time in contemporary American history that a president has taken that position. Uh, and it's not incompetence. They have taken that position. That is their policy. Uh, when you do that, you uh, pull in the world that will cross your border. And that's just what's happening um, right now. And it's been this way since about May. The administration is accepting and admitting into the country more than 90% of everybody who reaches that border. When you have odds of 90% entry, you're dropping your smuggling money on the table and you're going to come and, and before they realize how stupid the Americans are being, you know, they want to get in while the getting's you, good. You say it's yeah. stupid, but also kind of intentional. So what do you think is stopping the Biden administration from addressing this issue fully? Um, the only thing that I can say about that is that they don't want to stop this. They want it. They like it. Uh, they want to get as many people as they possibly can into the country 
over the border in the shortest span of time. Now, I will say that recently the Biden campaign, uh, as opposed to the Biden administration, is starting to assert itself. And we see the Biden campaign worried about poll numbers that show this as a top U.S. election issue for 2024. And they have, this has sort of, it's like the tail wagging the dog, uh, caused the uh, president and the State Department to go down to Mexico and, and cut some kind of a deal with the Mexicans uh, to have them round up thousands and thousands of immigrants from the northern border, their northern border, and ship them to their southern provinces and hold them there. Uh, and to shut down the freight trains, uh, deny access to those freight trains, uh, to bulldoze migrant camps. This is a very recent uh, development, but I think that's the only, it's the campaign and election uh, considerations that are running that policy down in Mexico. So the numbers are starting to drop, but they're still at 5,000 a day 4,000 a day, which is uh, historic, even that. And what do you think that could signify about the U.S.'s relationship with Mexico on this issue? Because Mexico, you know, is obviously a key player in this as well. And we haven't been able to, in the past three years, get them on board, particularly. No, you're right. Um, so the Mexicans, uh, we know that they respond uh, when Trump was in office, they responded to the big stick. Uh, Donald Trump said, we're going to put trade tariffs on you if you don't take out, take all of my uh, deportees uh, and, and up to 28%, which would just destroy the Mexican economy. And the Mexicans played ball with that big stick hanging over their heads. The Biden administration came in with carrots uh, and they just, the Mexicans were like, yeah, whatever, man. And they just sent everybody through. They, they took the carrots, of course, and or the checks and cashed them. Uh, but once the checks were cashed, so uh, the diplomacy that we that we are seeing now and that we've seen for the last three or four weeks is secret. Uh, they are not either the Mexicans or the Americans uh, it, telling anybody what is being traded, what the horse trading is. is. Right. Uh, and I suspect maybe it's some kind of a stick. Uh, it could also be you know, the Mexicans were asking for $20 billion. Uh, so maybe there's some of that too. They're holding that out. Uh, and I just, know, it's a big well, Right, so that's an interesting point. And I also wanna take another look at uh, another side of the funding. You've recently published an article about the Biden administration sending millions of dollars to religious nonprofits to, uh, to help, which you say, facilitate mass illegal immigration. Tell us about that. What are they doing beyond normal provisions for migrants coming in? And we, we just have a short period of time if you could give a brief statement on that. Right. So, you know, the, the UN has a mammoth endeavor down there. They're running it with about 250 NGOs, including the religious ones, but also international ones. It turns out that the State Department under Biden is providing millions of dollars, tax dollars, directly to those NGOs for aid delivery all along the migration trails from South America to the north. Uh, they're looking at $1.6 billion for 2024. Those NGOs are going to be handing out a big chunk of that 
And it turns out that a lot of it is coming from State Department grants directly to those NGOs. And that's U.S. taxpayer money. There are Republicans uh, that are extremely upset about that, that we're funding our own border crisis is how they put it. All right. Thank uh, you so, so it's much. A political issue as well. Great to hear your insights. Thank you so much. Todd Benzman, Senior National Security Fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies. Thank you. And three men from Mexico are facing felony charges for leading a retail theft ring and selling fake IDs to illegal immigrants. The suspected ringleaders of the scheme were arrested in Chicago last week. A spike in shoplifting arrests on Michigan Avenue led to an investigation. Here's Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart on the fraud and theft scheme. Sheriff Dart says investigators recovered close to 500 fake IDs. The fakes include driver's licenses, social security cards, and even green cards. He said some individuals involved were directed to steal specific items to get an ID card. Police say the fake IDs cost around $150 on average. Investigators believe there are other operations in the city targeting illegal immigrants. Story we were getting over and over again. So we did an undercover operation as a result of that. We got enough information to direct us where this was going on. We then worked on this thing for a couple weeks, and then we started buying some of these phony cards ourselves. At the conclusion of that, we executed a search warrant, and during the course of it, this is what we got. Released without bail after allegedly attacking police, several migrants tussled with New York City police officers near Times Square on Saturday. Surveillance footage from the New York Police Department shows the officers instructing the individuals to leave the area on Saturday evening. A struggle occurs as the officers appear to hold someone to the ground. The suspects then kick the officers before fleeing. Four individuals between the ages of 19 and 24 were arrested and then released without posting bail. Police Benevolent Association President Patrick Hendry said assaults on police are becoming an epidemic. Hendry blames what he calls a revolving door in the justice system. He issued a statement saying it is impossible for police officers to deal effectively with crime and disorder if the justice system can't or won't protect us while we do that work. New York is considering a plan to relax hiring qualifications for 4,000 jobs so they can be filled by illegal immigrants with work permits. The plan would allow bypassing proof of education, previous employment, and English proficiency. The state's Department of Civil Service says 4,000 vacant positions have already been found so they can enter the workforce. The agency's memo stated most of the jobs are entry-level positions in healthcare, hospitality, auto repair, and building or ground maintenance. Officials listed three barriers in the memo that are stopping illegal immigrants from getting state jobs limited English, being unable to verify education, and previous employment. The department says it would waive the usual requirements by creating temporary positions with transitional titles while they obtain the required credentials. Today on Capitol Hill, a hearing on child exploitation. Executives from TikTok, Snap, Discord and X are called to testify along with Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg. Lawmakers have long criticized social media companies for failing to protect kids from dangers online. 
Today, members of the Senate Judiciary Committee are pressing them for answers. Let's take a look. Mr. Zuckerberg. Chairman Durbin, Ranking Member Graham, and members of the committee, every day, teens and young people do amazing things on our services. They use our apps to create new things, express themselves, explore the world around them, and feel more connected to the people they care about. Overall, teens tell us that this is a positive part of their lives. But some face challenges online, so we work hard to provide parents and teens support and controls to reduce potential harms. Being a parent is one of the hardest jobs in the world. Technology gives us new ways to communicate with our kids and feel connected to their lives, but it can also make parenting more complicated. And it's important to me that our services are positive for everyone who uses them. We are on the side of parents everywhere working hard to raise their kids. Over the last eight years, we've built more than 30 different tools, resources, and features that parents can set time limits for their teens using our apps, see who they're following, or if they report someone for bullying. For teens, we've added nudges that remind them when they've been using Instagram for a while or if it's getting late and they should go to sleep, as well as ways to hide words or people without those people finding out. We put special restrictions on teen accounts on Instagram. By default, accounts for under 16s are set to private, have the most restrictive content settings, and can't be messaged by adults that they don't follow or people they aren't connected to. With so much of our lives spent on mobile devices and social media, it's important to look into the effects on teen mental health and well-being. I take this very seriously. Mental health is a complex issue, and the existing body of scientific work has not shown a causal link between using social media and young people having worse mental health outcomes. A recent National Academies of Science report evaluated over 300 studies and found that research, quote, did not support the conclusion that social media causes changes in adolescent mental health at the population level, end quote. It also suggested that social media can provide significant positive benefits when young people use it to express themselves, explore and connect with others. Still, we're going to continue to monitor the research and use it to inform our roadmap. Keeping young people safe online has been a challenge since the internet began. And as criminals evolve their tactics, we have to evolve our defenses too. We work closely with law enforcement to find bad actors and help bring them to justice. But the difficult reality is that no matter how much we invest or how effective our tools are, there are always more, there's always more to learn and more improvements to make. But we remain ready to work with members of this committee, industry, and parents to make the internet safer for everyone. I'm proud of the work that our teams do to improve online child safety on our services and across the entire internet. We have around 40,000 people overall working on safety and security, and we've invested more than $20 billion in this since 2016, including around $5 billion in the last year alone. We have many teams dedicated to child safety and teen well-being, and we lead the industry in a lot of the areas that we're discussing today. We build technology to tackle the worst online risks and share it to help our whole industry get better like Project Lantern, which helps companies share data about people who break child safety rules, and we're founding members of Take It Down, a platform which helps young people prevent their nude images from being spread online. We also go beyond legal requirements and use sophisticated technology to proactively discover abusive material. And as a result, we find and report more inappropriate content than anyone else in the industry. As the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children put it this week, Meta goes, quote, above and beyond to make sure that there are no portions of their network where this type of activity occurs, end quote. 
I hope we can have a substantive discussion today that drives improvements across the industry, including legislation that delivers what parents say they want, a clear system for age verification and control over what apps their kids are using. Three out of four parents want app store age verification, and four out of five want parental approval of whatever, uh, whenever teens download apps. We support this. Parents should have the final say on what apps are appropriate for their children and shouldn't have to upload their ID every time. That's what app stores are for. We also support setting industry standards on age-appropriate content and limiting signals for advertising to teens, to age and location, and not behavior. At the end of the day, we want everyone who uses our services to have safe and positive experiences. Before I wrap up, I want to recognize the, the families who are here today um, who have lost a loved one or lived through some, some terrible things that no family should have to endure. These issues are important for every parent and every platform. I'm committed to continuing to work in these areas, and I hope we can make progress today. Mr. Chu. Chair Durbin, Ranking Member Graham, and members of the committee, I appreciate the opportunity to appear before you today. My name is Sho Chu, and I'm the CEO of TikTok, an online community of more than 1 billion people worldwide, including well over 170 million Americans who use our app every month to create, to share, and to discover. Now, although the average age on TikTok in the US is over 30, we recognize that special safeguards are required to protect minors, and especially when it comes to combating all forms of CSAM. As a father of three young children myself, I know that the issues that we're discussing today are horrific and the nightmare of every parent. I am proud of our efforts to address the threats to young people online, from a commitment to protecting them, to our industry-leading policies, use of innovative technology, and significant ongoing investments in trust and safety to achieve this goal. TikTok is vigilant about enforcing its 13 and up age policy and offers an experience for teens that is much more restrictive than you and I would have as adults. We make careful product design choices to help make our app inhospitable to those seeking to harm teens. Let me give you a few examples of long-standing policies that are unique to TikTok. We didn't do them last week. First, direct messaging is not available to any users under the age of 16. Second, accounts for people under 16 are automatically set to private along with their content. Furthermore, the content cannot be downloaded and will not be recommended to people they do not know. Third, every teen under 18 has a screen time limit automatically, automatically set to 60 minutes. And fourth, only people 18 and above are allowed to use our live stream feature. I'm proud to say that TikTok was among the first to empower parents to supervise their teens on our app with our family pairing tools. This includes setting screen time limits, filtering out content from the teens' feeds, amongst others. We made these choices after consulting with doctors and safety experts who understand the unique stages of teenage development to ensure that we have the appropriate safeguards to prevent harm and minimize risk. Now, safety is one of the core priorities that defines TikTok under my leadership. 
We currently have more than 40,000 trust and safety professionals working to protect our community globally. And we expect to invest more than $2 billion in trust and safety efforts this year alone, with a significant part of that in our US operations. Our robust community guidelines strictly prohibit content or behavior that puts teenagers at risk of exploitation or other harm, and we vigorously enforce them. Our technology moderates all content uploaded to our app to help quickly identify potential CSAM and other material that breaks our rules. It automatically removes the content or elevates it to our safety professionals for further review. We also moderate direct messages for CSAM and related material and use third-party tools like PhotoDNA and Take It Down to combat CSAM to prevent content from being uploaded to our platform. We continually meet with parents, teachers, and teens. In fact, I sat down with a group just a few days ago. We use their insight to strengthen the protections on our platform, and we also work with leading groups like the Technology Coalition. The steps that we're taking to protect teens are a critical part of our larger trust and safety work as we continue our voluntary and unprecedented efforts to build a safe and secure data environment for US users ensuring that our platform remains free from outside manipulation and implementing safeguards uh, on our content recommendation and moderation tools. Keeping teens safe online requires a collaborative effort as well as collective action. We share the community's concern and commitment to protect young people online, and we welcome the opportunity to work with you on legislation to achieve this goal. Our commitment is ongoing and unwavering because there is no finish line when it comes to protecting teens. Thank you for your time and, cons and consideration today. I'm happy to answer your questions. Thanks, Mr. Drew. Coming up, House Speaker Johnson speaking out on the right to believe around the world, how the Chinese Communist Party's human rights abuses come into the spotlight at a summit in Washington. President Biden and China's Xi could be talking directly to each other relatively soon. We hear more from National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan when we return. House Speaker Mike Johnson vowing to punish the Chinese Communist Party for its human rights abuses. That says the CCP's persecution of people of faith comes into the spotlight at the 2024 International Religious Freedom Summit in D.C. Joining us now live is NTD's Iris Tao from the summit. Good to see you, Iris. What's the House Speaker's message today? Good afternoon to both of you at this 2024 International Religious Freedom Summit here in Washington, D.C. House Speaker Mike Johnson is calling out the Chinese Communist Party for persecuting and even harvesting organs from Falun Gong practitioners and other prisoners of conscience in China. Watch. Tibetan Buddhists and Falun Gong practitioners are placed in forced labor camps, and they have their organs harvested by the Chinese Communist Party. And at this moment, the U.S. has an opportunity and an obligation to prevent genocide and punish those who commit it. As China, yes. 
Last year, the House overwhelmingly passed a bill to punish the CCP for forced organ harvesting and targeting prisoners of conscience. And right now, a coalition of over 100 lawmakers, doctors, academics, and civil groups are also calling on the United Nations to establish an international criminal tribunal to investigate the CCP's crimes of forced organ harvesting. Back in 2019, an independent tribunal in London concluded after a year-long investigation that forced organ harvesting had taken place in China for years and on a significant scale. The main source of organs for the CCP's crimes were practitioners of Falun Gong who were detained for practicing the peaceful meditation practice. Meanwhile, other human rights experts tell NTD that the U.S. government should step up its response to China's human rights violations. Watch. They've been at war with the Uyghur Muslims, with the Christians, with Falun Gong. This, this is a regime that is completely opposed to the ideas that the United States has, and we need to confront them. It's religious freedom. We see it as a cornerstone human right. They see it as an existential threat. And several other lawmakers from both sides of the aisle are also slated to speak at this summit later today. Back to you. Thanks for that report, Iris. White House correspondent Iris Tao, thank you. Multiple private investigations and an intel report find that China's Communist Party interfered with the U.S. election a few years ago. For insight on this, I spoke with Andrew Thornbrook, national security correspondent with the Epic Times. Andrew, thank you for joining us. A declassified intel report reveals that the Chinese regime interfered in the U.S. 2022 midterm elections. Tell us about what this report detailed. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, yeah, so this has been a bit of a bombshell. I think we're really just coming around to understanding how significant this threat has been. Uh, so we've had a report from the Director of National Intelligence following several private sector reports, sort of outlining that Chinese-based actors, uh, China-based actors, uh, really tried to influence the outcome of the 2022 midterm elections by essentially favoring or giving gifts and these sorts of things to, to amplify uh, candidates who they thought were pro-China and also trying to detract and spread misinformation and essentially uh, decrease support for those who they viewed as being anti-China, right? And this was a cross-party. It didn't matter if it was Democrat or Republican. What mattered to the uh, CCP, essentially the Chinese communist actors, was that these candidates were either pro or uh, against China. Representative Tom Tiffany of Wisconsin said that the Chinese Communist Party will continue their efforts until the CCP is dealt with more seriously. Based on past approaches, what could a tougher stance look like from the U.S. and, and, and how was this interference be able to slip through? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. So, so there is a real question about how to prevent this because in the United States, you know, we do have a pretty open information. I don't have the great firewall. We we have our kids on TikTok, most of us on, on Twitter or whatever other uh, social media. So it's very difficult to control this type of uh, malign influence in our society. Uh, really what that's going to probably have to look like is essentially very curt diplomacy between the United States and Chinese Communist leadership about what consequences will follow if it does happen. Uh, to that end, we have actually had some reporting out today 
that uh, it looks like when President Joe Biden met uh, CCP leader Xi Jinping uh, back in San Francisco, that Joe Biden actually brought up the issue of election interference. And there, there does seem to be a real big fear in the White House at this moment that uh, the CCP will be interfering in the 2024 presidential election. Um, yeah, we definitely got to uh, be keep an eye on that. Now, uh, the director of national intelligence assessed that the CCP tried to influence both Democrats and Republicans, like you mentioned, uh, based on their tough on China policy. Now, what kind of leverage does the regime actually have on U.S. leaders? Yeah, you know, this is a very interesting uh, problem. And it, we really see the CCP working through all sorts of angles to try to essentially dig up dirt and where it can't dig up dirt, create dirt. Uh, so, for example, we've, we've seen agents of the CCP try to contract essentially private investigators in the United States uh, to conduct honeypot schemes, to try to get uh, members of Congress or potential members of Congress to have affairs. Uh, one in, in one case last year, we actually saw uh, Chinese communist agents hire someone to and suggest that they might get this uh, candidate for Congress in a car accident. Right. So we're really seeing all sorts of malign influence, whether it's misinformation online, these sort of bot campaigns to amplify or heat content artificially, right, to, to more direct and actual, uh, you know, stalking, in some cases, assault. Thanks for sharing that. Now, elections uh, aren't the only way to subvert the U.S. in other ways, like you mentioned. Uh, the Chinese regime has also attempted to influence other areas, like U.S. education, uh, especially universities, news, media, Hollywood, technology. Uh, can you tell us about the security concerns here? So we're going to see increased efforts at intellectual property theft. We're going to see increased expert, uh, incidents of espionage. Um, we're going to see increased efforts to interfere in elections. So this is really a, a wide gamut of techniques the Chinese Communist Party has developed to essentially exploit any opening they see as it happens, right? So it's, it's in one way, it's very directed. It's a long-term strategy, but it's also reactive. It's waiting for us to make mistakes so that it can respond to them in real time. All right. Andrew Thornbrook, National Security Correspondent with the Epic Times. Thank you for joining us. President Biden and Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping could speak directly soon. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said Tuesday that both he and Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi agreed that the two leaders should have a phone conversation. Uh, I think the acknowledgement coming out of Woodside that there really is no substitute for leader-to-leader -leader conversation. Um, yeah, I mean, it became so apparent over the course of that meeting in Woodside how central that ingredient has to be to an effective stewardship of U.S.-China policy. Biden and Xi last met in Woodside, California in November. Sullivan also mentioned, mentioned that the first U.S.-China working group on countering fentanyl met on Tuesday in Beijing. Synthetic opioids, primarily fentanyl, killed over 70,000 Americans in 2021. That's about one person every eight minutes. Most of the precursor chemicals for the drug come from China. Sullivan also recognized recent progress in resuming military-to-military -military talks between the two countries. And New Zealand tells the U.S. it has neglected the Pacific, which is causing problems. Here's New Zealand's Foreign Minister Winston Peters. Neglect of international engagement by countries that should know better, including the U.S., has led to a vacuum, and a vacuum is being filled. Who filled the vacuum? 
Peters did not mention China by name, but jostling between Washington and Beijing for influence in the Pacific has increased in recent years. The competition touches on many aspects, including the economy, infrastructure, security, defense, and disaster aid. Last year, a Defense Department official said China's leaders seek to overturn the rules-based international order that has maintained peace in the region since World War II. Sixty percent of the world's maritime trade passes through the Indo-Pacific region. Coming up, former President Trump receives a million dollars to help with his legal fees and another 20 million for his political campaign. Find out who the generous donor is and why he says he wants to help Trump. Georgia Trump prosecutor Nathan Wade avoids testifying in his divorce case about an alleged affair with Fulton County DA Fannie Willis. More on the settlement reached yesterday that canceled today's hearing. Former President Trump's legal battles, presidential candidate Nikki Haley is now again attacking Trump for his legal woes. The New York Times reports that Trump spent approximately $50 million in donor money on legal bills in 2023, citing two unnamed sources. NTD has not verified those numbers. Haley responded to the report saying it's another reason Donald Trump won't debate her, adding that he can't beat Joe Biden if he's spending all his time and money on court cases and chaos. According to the same report, $50 million is about how much Haley raised across all her committees in 2023. Haley also attacked Trump last week after a jury ordered him to pay over $80 million to writer E. Jean Carroll. Just on Tuesday, a hotelier reportedly said he agreed to donate $20 million to a pro-Trump group. Robert Bigelow says he gave the former president a million dollars last week with the promise to donate 20 more. Bigelow told Reuters that the million was for Trump's legal fees, while the 20 will be for campaign purposes. The owner of Budget Suites of America says Trump is being unfairly targeted in the criminal cases and that his sympathy towards the former president motivated the donation. And today, Trump is expected to meet with the Teamsters, one of America's largest union worker unions. The union has around 1.3 million members and was founded over 100 years ago. The meeting comes as the economy is shaping up to be front and center in this year's election cycle. Trump and Biden are both expected to target union votes in battleground states. And Trump's special prosecutor Nathan Wade reached a temporary divorce settlement with his estranged wife yesterday. A judge canceled a hearing set for today. This means that Wade will likely avoid having to testify about an alleged affair with his boss, Fulton County DA, Fannie Willis. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the story. Court filings show special prosecutor Nathan Wade reached a divorce settlement with his estranged wife, Jocelyn Wade, on Tuesday. Cobb County Judge Henry Thompson signed a temporary agreement, cancelling a hearing set for Wednesday. Wade was expected to testify about his relationship with Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Willis tried to quash her subpoena in the divorce case, but Judge Thompson refused. The judge said he would decide if the DA should give a deposition after hearing Wade's testimony first. Willis is accused of having an improper relationship with the Atlanta prosecutor that she hired to bring election interference charges against Trump and over a dozen co-defendants. An attorney for co-defendant Michael Roman filed a motion to dismiss the case earlier this month on claims of prosecutorial misconduct. Roman accuses Willis of profiting significantly from an improper personal relationship with Wade on taxpayers' expense. Court documents show Wade paid for Willis to fly with him to two different cities. 
Roman is also accusing Willis of using Fulton County funds set aside to clear a backlog of pandemic-era cases to pay a large sum of money to Wade. Roman wants Willis and her office disqualified from the case. Trump is also demanding the case be thrown out, saying it's been totally compromised and is politically driven. A Fulton Superior Court judge gave Willis until Friday to respond to the allegations in writing and set a hearing on Roman's motion for mid-February. Fulton County's Audit Committee is asking Willis to address the improper relationship allegations. The Fulton County Commissioner is calling for Willis to provide explanations, including payments to Wade, by Friday. A lawyer for Wade's wife says her client's divorce case is not over, with only alimony and attorney's fees now resolved. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Joining us now is NTD business host Don Maud to talk about the case against Elon Musk's pay package. A Delaware judge ruled yesterday that the Tesla CEO can't keep a pay package potentially worth more than $55 billion. So Don, why did the judge make this ruling? Well, according to a Delaware judge Kathleen McCormick, um, her ruling was based on what she said that uh, this package, this pay package, um, has uh, is an amount that is way too high. She says that the company's board of directors failed to prove that the compensation plan was fair. That's in her own words. She says that the plaintiff has shown that the process leading to the board's approval of Musk's compensation was actually quote deeply flawed. Um, so now a bit of background information. Uh, the pay package that Tesla granted Musk was uh, back in 2018. And it was the largest compensation plan in public corporate history, according to the judge. And later, an investor sued Musk and several Tesla directors in 2018, uh, claiming that Musk's pay package was not fair. Um, and then the lawsuit uh, accused Musk and Tesla's board of directors of breaching their duties and wasting corporate assets and unjustly enriching the billionaire. Uh, now, McCormick said that the defendants failed to prove that the compensation plan was just. So what's Musk's next course of action on this? Well, many experts believe that Musk, uh, what he may do next is to uh, appeal and that may be likely, uh, but before that can happen, the judge will have to finalize the ruling and decide on compensation for the lawyers who represented the plaintiffs. And Musk did react to the ruling on social media platform X. He said, uh, quote, never incorporate your company in the state of Delaware. That's where the ruling took place. Uh, so Musk has previously said that discussions on a new pay package uh, with the board were on hold pending the outcome of this case. Um, so in light of this case, I think it's also worth pointing out that this judge, Kathleen McCormick, she's known for being tough on Wall Street and she has a track record of actually ruling in favor of smaller investors and against big corporations. All right, thanks so much for this update. NTD business host Don Ma, always great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you, Don. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. The Biden administration figuring out how to retaliate against Iran. Find out what the Iranian regime has to say and what the Houthis are trying to do. Affirmative action at West Point. The Biden administration asked the Supreme Court to allow the military academy to take race into consideration. The court might rule today. Senator Lindsey Graham scolding social media companies at a hearing on children's online safety. He tells tech CEOs they have blood on their hands. 
That and other contentious moments from the hearing. Police were allegedly attacked by a group of migrants over the weekend. What happened after some of them were arrested is raising some eyebrows. Freezing temperatures leaving one Arkansas town without water, while feet of snow pile up in Alaska. We look at some of the harshest winter conditions across the U.S. Paris gets ready to host the 2024 Summer Olympics. We take a look at how the French capital is preparing and what attendees can expect. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. I'm David Lamb, sitting in for Chris Beers. And to begin the show, President Biden and Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping could speak directly soon. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said Tuesday that both he and Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi agreed that the two leaders should have a phone conversation. I think the acknowledgement coming out of Woodside that there really is no substitute for leader-to-leader -leader conversation. Um, yeah, I mean, it became so apparent over the course of that meeting in Woodside how central that ingredient has to be to an effective stewardship of U.S.-China policy. Biden and Xi last met in Woodside, California in November. Sullivan also mentioned that the first U.S.-China working group on countering fentanyl met on Tuesday in Beijing. Synthetic opioids, primarily fentanyl, killed over 70,000 Americans in 2021. That's about one person every eight minutes. Most of the precursor chemicals for the drug come from China. Sullivan also recognized recent progress in resuming military-to-military -military talks between the two countries. And New Zealand tells the U.S. it has neglected the Pacific, which is causing problems. Here's New Zealand's Foreign Minister, Winston Peters. Neglect of international engagement by countries that should know better, including the U.S., has led to a vacuum, and a vacuum is being filled. Who filled the vacuum? Peters did not mention China by name, but jostling between Washington and Beijing for influence in the Pacific has increased in recent years. The competition touches on many aspects, including the economy, infrastructure, security, defense, and disaster aid. Last year, Defense Department officials said China's leaders seek to overturn the rules-based international order that has maintained peace in the region since World War II. Sixty percent of the world's maritime trade passes through the Indo-Pacific region. And turning our attention now to conflicts in the Middle East. All eyes are on the Biden administration and how it will retaliate against Iran. U.S. officials said the campaign could last weeks. They plan to target Iranian targets outside Iran. The campaign will cover both physical strikes and cyber operations. At the same time, the Iranian regime said it will decisively respond to any attack from the U.S., saying no threat will be left unanswered. And in the Red Sea, the Houthi terrorists continue to attack ships. A U.S. destroyer shot down a Houthi missile late Tuesday. The terrorist group is threatening more attacks on U.S. and British warships. The European Union hopes to launch a naval mission in the Red Sea within three weeks. The Commission said it wants to help defend cargo ships against Houthi attacks. Seven EU countries are ready to provide ships or planes. The, the House Foreign Affairs Committee held a hearing yesterday on the UNRWA mission. The hearing comes amid allegations that some of UNRWA's staff were involved in the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel. And of course, UNRWA is the UN body uh, that is helping out in 
in Gaza. Accusations became public last week after UNRWA said it fired some staff after Israel provided the agency with information. The UN Secretary General said of the 12 people implicated, nine were fired, one is dead, and the identities of the other two were being clarified. Over a dozen countries, including the U.S., have paused funding to the organizations since accusations came to light. In the past three years, the U.S. government has given nearly $1 billion to UNRWA. Here's what one lawmaker had to say at Tuesday's hearing. I can tell you that to expect moving forward, we will be introducing legislation to claw back any recent dollars that were sent to UNRWA. And staying in the Middle East, the Pentagon says actions speak louder than words. That's in response to claims from the Iran-backed terrorist group Kataib Hezbollah saying that they'll stop assaults on U.S. forces. The U.S. believes this group is likely responsible for the latest attack in Jordan that killed three soldiers and wounded dozens others. President Biden says he's made his mind up on how to respond, but we don't know any further details. To discuss this and more, we're joined by Brandon Weikert, political, geopolitical analyst and the author of The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. Brandon, how do you interpret Khatib Hezbollah's claim in the context of the U.S. vowing to respond to the strike in Jordan? Well, I think the fact that the Khatib Hezbollah is even allowed to continue speaking is insane. Uh, they should have been destroyed years ago. This is an organization that has plagued that region uh, for many years. Uh, the Qasim Soleimani, who was the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, who was killed by Donald Trump, was actually killed in a convoy leaving the Baghdad airport that was being run by Kateb Hezbollah. So, uh, you know, this is a problem that has plagued us for many years. The first thing Biden should have done, on top of knocking out the Houthis for all their attacks in the last few weeks, should have been to immediately blitz the bejesus out of Kateb Hezbollah from the air. But nothing has been done, and they're now apparently still talking as if they're a legitimate actor. They're not. And, you know, so there are options here on the table, potentially doing some specific strikes, and that may happen soon. But we do know that this is an Iran-backed group. We also know that their tensions are rising with Iran and the U.S. And we know as well that, you know, some, some analysts are saying that Iran is not a nuclear power, and yet we do know that Iran has been uh, increasing its... Um, it's uh, enrichment of uranium to near weapons grade at least. Uh, how do you, how careful do you think we should be about our response when Iran is involved? Well, the first thing is Iran already is a nuclear power. It's a question of how sophisticated of a nuclear power they are. They still need to work on their miniaturization of nuclear warheads that can fit on top of ballistic missiles, and they need to perfect their delivery systems, the aforementioned ballistic missiles, although in both cases they are working very hard on perfecting those systems. In fact, their recent launches of satellites into space were a backdoor way to perfect the same kind of missiles that would be used to launch nukes. Um, in terms in terms of 
hitting Iran. I know Lindsey Graham and some of the neoconservatives in D.C. are demanding that we hit Iran directly. I would hold off on that because the real issue here is if we go into Iran, we break it, we're going to own it. And the last thing we want to do is invade, have to invade Iran and rebuild that country for the next 30 years. Instead, go after the proxies that are attacking us and then get the Abraham Accords, Accords finalized. Bring Israel and the Saudis together in an official alliance so that they can, over the long term, contain, with our help, Iran and do to Iran that which the Allies did to the Soviet Union uh, in the Cold War, defeat them bloodlessly. So, you know, you're an expert in shadow war dynamics, and that's essentially what we're seeing here in the Middle East with Iran using proxy groups. How would you analyze the long-term objectives of Iran in this situation in terms of these attacks against U.S. Um, targets in the Middle East? A Saudi official many years ago said to me that uh, in his summation, Iran was a paper tiger with steel claws. And as I say in the book, those steel claws are their proxy groups, Hamas. Houthis, uh, the Hezbollah, and all these other groups, Kataibi Hezbollah. And so what we should be doing uh, is targeting those groups because they are the way that Iran reaches from beyond their territory. And so if you can kind of cut off the claws, Iran's not so much of a threat anymore. Reagan did this, by the way, to Iran in the 80s during the so-called tanker war, and it worked. And that gives us time to put Iran back into the box that they were loosed out of when we invaded Iraq in 2003. And so that's the first thing we need to be working on is getting rid of those proxies so that then as a regional force, we can use our allies to contain Iran, lock it up in its own territory, and let its own people take care of the regime. Great to speak with you as always, Brandon Weikert, geopolitical analyst and the author of The Shadow War. Thank you so much. Coming up, Florida makes a change to its driver's license rules. Find out how it affects those who identify as transgender. Schools are still closed in a Boston suburb. Today marks the ninth day of a strike. How the teachers union there has racked up over half a million dollars in legal fees. We have that and more when we return. Harvard University could be facing a fresh plagiarism scandal after an earlier one led to the resignation of the institution's president. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on a new complaint against the university's chief diversity and inclusion officer. The complaint is against Harvard's chief diversity and inclusion officer, historian Sherry Ann Charleston. It alleges she lifted significant portions of text in her academic work without quotation marks. The complaint obtained by the Washington Free Beacon alleges that her doctoral dissertation contains a lot of other scholars' language verbatim with no quotation marks, with just references and footnotes. It makes about 40 comparisons between Charleston's writing and reference materials. In many of the examples, the two texts are not identical word for word, but there appears to be significant overlap. Harvard University has not yet commented on the allegations, nor its planned response to them. The latest development comes after former Harvard President Claudine Gay resigned after being accused of plagiarism. Billionaire investor Ken Griffin says he has halted his giving to the school over how it handled anti-Semitism on campus and the leadership crisis involving its president. 
The investor, speaking at the Managed Funds Association conference in Miami on Tuesday, wondered whether Harvard would get back to educating young adults to be the future leaders of the country. Or are they going to maintain being lost in the wilderness of microaggressions, a DEI agenda that seems to have no real end game? Are we going to educate the, the future members, the House and the Senate and the leaders of IBM? Or are we going to educate a group of, of young men and women who are just caught up in a rhetoric of oppressor and oppressee? Griffin made headlines in April 2023 by donating $300 million to Harvard's Faculty of Arts and Sciences, raising the total amount of his gifts to more than half a billion. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. NTD has reached out to Harvard to confirm whether they've received the complaint and for their comments on the allegations. We didn't receive a response before, show, before the show, but we'll keep you updated on the story if they get back to us. Using racial criteria for student admissions at West Point, the Biden administration is now asking the Supreme Court to allow the military academy to take race into consideration. The nation's highest court struck down the use of affirmative action at colleges in June, but that ruling applied to civilian schools, not to military academies. That's why students for fair admissions filed an emergency application last week. They want the Supreme Court to prohibit West Point from using affirmative action. The Biden administration yesterday filed a brief in opposition to the group's emergency application, asking the Supreme Court to allow race-based admissions. Students for fair admissions suggested today as a deadline for the justices to rule on its emergency application. Today, the deadline for the applications from prospective students for West Point's class of 2028. Florida has decided to stop allowing people who identify as another gender to reflect that on their driver's licenses. The state's Department of Highway Safety and Motor Vehicles made the policy change. The department says the provision on gender requirements in the driver license operations manual would be rescinded. The provision allowed people in Florida to update the gender marker on their licenses. The department's executive director issued a memo saying a driver's license is an identification document and that allowing changes based on internal gender identity could undermine the purpose of this record. However, the memo clarifies that the process for establishing gender for a newly issued license remains unchanged. People can provide supporting documents such as a driver's license from another state, a U.S. passport, or a U.S. birth certificate to establish their gender for a new Florida license. A teacher's strike in a Boston suburb is entering its ninth day today. It's one of the longest in recent state history. Schools in Newtown, which is... Newton, which is just outside Boston, remained closed today. The town has a population of almost 90,000. The city's Teachers Association is seeking higher wages for all employees and increased paid family leave time. They also want to guarantee that social workers will be placed in every elementary and middle school. The city is saying that what we are asking for costs too much money. Um, that there isn't the money to fund that when in fact there have been school budget cuts the last two years of totaling about six million dollars but there has been a city surplus in the budget of 29 million newton's city council president criticized the strike saying it hurts the kids the most because they're not in school and urged both sides to reach a deal quickly the school committee made a revised offer on Tuesday, which it described as fair and competitive. 
The union reportedly rejected it, responding with another counter-proposal late Tuesday night. It's actually illegal for public workers, including teachers, to strike in Massachusetts. A judge last week began doubling fines for the teachers' union until it reached a total of almost $400,000. At that point, the judge opted to add $50,000 a day. This brings the total to over half a million dollars. Anchorage, Alaska has received a lot of snow this winter, even by Alaskan standards. The total accumulation is over 100 inches. That's over 8 feet of snow. It's also the fastest time 100 inches of snow has ever fallen there. There's so much snow in Anchorage that commercial building roofs are collapsing. Authorities are warning residents to start shoveling at home to avoid a similar situation. Anchorage is on track to break its all-time record of over 134 inches in a winter. And one local homeowner is making the best of the weather, building a snowman that stands over 20 feet tall. Snowzilla, as it's called, has attracted tourists and residents alike. It's a little bit more than usual. It's kind of fun, to be honest. I like to jump in the snow sometimes. It's a little hard since they haven't cleared the sidewalks to walk here, so I slipped and fell a couple times. Right. Yeah, they kind of need it. Freezing temperatures, leaving an Arkansas town without running water for the past two weeks. The outage has forced residents to line up for bottled water, fill up jugs, and take showers at state-provided water trucks. The outage is affecting about 1,400 residents in Helena, West Helena. Officials are racing to fix leaks in the city and restore water access, but they're facing the long-term challenge of overhauling a decades-old infrastructure system. The outages are affecting one of two city water systems. A local emergency management director said he thinks one pump is down completely and the other is not pumping very much water. The ice and the number of leaks um, and the number of major leaks, they could not maintain um, um, pressure in the, in, the, um, in the tank nor the lines, so that caused the domino effect of the um, water system failing for the most part. Up next, the New York City Council is overriding two vetoes by Mayor Eric Adams on police-related bills. More on how this will affect New Yorkers and the NYPD. And AI-generated images gained national attention last week with fake explicit images of Taylor Swift appearing on social media. But the abuse is not limited to only celebrities. What can people do to protect themselves? Our guest weighs in after the break. The New York City Council overriding two vetoes by Mayor Eric Adams. One bill bans solitary confinement in city jails. The other is about police stops. Officers will have to record basic demographic information about people they question in low-level investigative stops. We played with words on both these bills. We played with words on the stop. Because stop is really emotional, particularly in the black and brown communities that went through the stop and frisk era. This is not a stop. This is an interaction. That person is free to leave. And then we use the term of solitary confinement. These are emotional terms. We, should, we don't have solitary confinement. We should never have solitary confinement. Under current rules, jail officials can punish violent detainees by isolating them in a cell for up to 23 hours a day. The new law reduces that to a maximum of four hours with wellness checks by jail staff every 15 minutes. Adams is a former police officer. He's known for being more supportive of law enforcement than some of his fellow New York City Democrats. 
And three men from Mexico are facing felony charges for leading a retail theft ring and selling fake IDs to illegal immigrants. The suspected ringleaders of the scheme were arrested in Chicago last week. A spike in shoplifting arrests on Michigan Avenue led to an investigation. Here's Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart on the fraud and theft scheme. Sheriff Dart says investigators re recovered close to 500 fake IDs. The fakes include driver's licenses, social security cards, and even green cards. He said some individuals involved were directed to steal specific items to get an ID card. Police say the fake IDs cost around $150 on average. Investigators believe there are other operations in the city targeting illegal immigrants. This story we were getting over and over again. So we did an undercover operation as a result of that. We got enough information to direct us where this was going on. We then worked on this thing for a couple weeks, and then we started buying some of these phony cards ourselves. At the conclusion of that, we executed a search warrant, and during the course of it, this is what we got. Released without bail after allegedly attacking police, several migrants tussled with New York City police officers near Times Square on Saturday. Surveillance footage from the New York Police Department shows the officers instructing the individuals to leave the area on Saturday evening. A struggle occurs as the officers appear to hold someone to the ground. The suspects then kick the officers before fleeing. Four individuals between the ages of 19 and 24 were arrested and then released without posting bail. Police Benevolent Association President Patrick Hendry said assaults on police are becoming an epidemic. Hendry blames what he calls a revolving door in the justice system. He issued a statement saying it is impossible for police officers to deal effectively with crime and disorder if the justice system can't or won't protect us while we do that work. New York is considering a plan to relax hiring qualifications for 4,000 jobs so they can be filled by illegal immigrants with work permits. The plan would allow bypassing proof of education, previous employment, and English proficiency. The state's Department of Civil Service says 4,000 vacant positions have already been found so they can enter the workforce. The agency's memo stated most of the jobs are entry-level positions in healthcare, hospitality, auto repair, and building or ground maintenance. Officials listed three barriers in the memo that are stopping illegal immigrants from getting state jobs. Limited English, being unable to verify education, and previous employment. The department says it would waive the usual requirements by creating temporary positions with transitional titles while they obtain the required credentials. And there's been some pushback against illegal immigrant housing in New York City. For the latest, we're joined live by Entity's Chris Beers. Chris, give us an update. Hey guys, St. John's Episcopal Church in Staten Island, New York, had a plan to house over 50 illegal immigrants aged 22 to 25 on the first floor of a senior center. The response from local, state, and federal lawmakers was serious. We were very concerned about this because the seniors deserve to have you know, their residence that's peaceful, dedicated to them, and they were going to take away the community room away from them. And so we uh, researched the property. We found that uh, they received state tax credits. And we wrote a letter to the pastor, and we were able to successfully stop this plan from moving forward. Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis represents Staten Island and parts of Brooklyn, New York. Co-signers of the letter she wrote to St. John's Episcopal included the bureau president of Staten Island, Vito Fasella. This is not about um, 
you know, being anti-immigrant. It's about just trying to do the right thing here uh, for the taxpayers of Staten Island and New York City. So the poor guy or the young couple that is working two or three jobs to save and, and to put food on their table are paying to subsidize those who come across primarily, mostly illegally, and then end up. So they're paying $350 a day. In a press release, Reverend Hank Toole of St. John's Episcopal said he received disturbing threats after lawmakers responded to his plan. One resident of the senior center known as Canterbury House had this to say about Toole's plan. It's not right for adolescents live with seniors. We were young too at one time, but the way the adolescents live and what they do is dangerous for us. We felt threat. We're here because we... We deserve safety at our elder age. And that, that's what I think. I think that is just a way to make extra money for the, for the church or whatever. But you can't do that on the backs of elderly people. Borough President Fasella said the city originally estimated the cost of housing illegal immigrants to be at about half a billion dollars. The city now estimates that cost to be over $12 billion by 2035. Back to you. Chris Beers reporting out of New York City. Thank you. AI-generated images gained national attention last week when explicit and abusive images of pop singer Taylor Swift went viral across social media platforms. But it doesn't stop there. It's also being used to do the same to every average, everyday people. Earlier, I spoke with Jake Marabado, the Director of Communications and Technology Task Force at ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. Jake, what's the damage to society when it comes to deep fakes or fake AI-generated images? Well, thanks for having me on today, and I can assure you I am not a deep fake. Um, even though Taylor Swift has brought this issue um, to everybody's attention in the public consciousness, it's been an issue going back several years now. Um, and this is an opportunity for state legislators to really protect victims, hold abusers accountable, and allow uh, justice to be brought. Now, not only a-list celebrities like Taylor Swift is being affected, but the average American, such as in the case of a New Jersey high school student, uh, students, uh, deepfakes were being circulated um, among the campus. So um, artificial intelligence is relatively a new realm that we're dealing with. What can the public do to protect themselves? Well, that's a great point that plenty of everyday um, students, even minors, are vi fall victim to this um, AI deepfake technology. But this isn't a new problem per se, it's an evolution of an existing problem. And 10 states have already taken measures to update their existing statutes to clarify that yes, AI-generated non-consensual intimate images are illegal. For the remaining states, it's a bit unclear. And that's why Alex's new model legislation is necessary to update existing statutes to reflect that yes, these malicious deepfakes should be illegal and, and justice should be allowed through civil, um, civil justice. Now, only 10 states, as you've mentioned, but there's currently no federal law targeting deepfakes. Why aren't the laws keeping, keeping in pace with AI? That's a great point. At the federal level, there have been some proposals that have 
been um, advanced. Some of them, I would say, are actually kind of harmful to innovation. They want to they want to strictly regulate algorithms or require this problematic regime of risk assessments um, on the platform providers. And this would be an impediment to small business owners and everyday people who are trying to use AI for good as well. So why this is a better solution for state legislators is that it uses existing legal frameworks that we're all familiar with and just clarifies that even though technology may have updated, criminal activity should still be um, not tolerated and we need to hold these abusers accountable for their actions. Jake, so going back to the current state laws in the 10 states, um, well, what are the laws stating? Like, what's the enforcement behind that? Can you break it down for us? Sure. So I would kind of divide it into two categories. So you have some situations where it's like Taylor Swift or with um, those who are over 18, where it's essentially um, explicit or abusive images of an adult are being circulated without their permission. There's also the case of minors, a child sex abuse material, also known as CSAM. Um, and that brings its whole a whole nother level of criminal penalties. That And those abusers really need to be held accountable to the full extent of the law. Um, and Alex, Alex has a great framework that legislators can take today to their capitals. Um, it's bipartisan. It's not controversial. I think people understand this is a problem that needs to be fixed. Um, and it's a way to do that while protecting AI innovation um, and allowing this technology to flourish in a responsible way. And how would this be tracked down? Like if there's perpetrators violating these or abusing AI, how would it be enforced? Like would it go back, you know, tracing people that are using it and sharing these illegal images like can you break that down as well no, that's a great question, and, and there's certainly steps that federal and state law enforcement need to take to, to bring get up to speed on how exactly um, to find these abusers and you know get content off offline that's violating terms of service and work with platform holders that want to do the right thing. A lot of these social media platforms or AI companies, um, it's against strictly against their terms of service to use their products in this way, and they want to do the right things. But that is going to require, to your point modernizing the uh, law enforcement architecture and really giving them the tools to do their jobs. And lastly, Jake, to prevent abuse and exploitation, is it more effective to put in place laws that punish the users or AI developers? What needs to be done? I would say unequivocally that any legislation needs to target harmful conduct specifically, not the AI technology itself. Um, AI, like many other things, is a tool. It can be used for good, it can be used for ill. Some are saying it could be a multi-billion or trillion dollar economic opportunity, and we don't want to, to shut down innovation before this tech can even get off the ground. Therefore, legislators need to very specifically target harmful conduct that is, that is damaging to individual users. Um, and we have plenty of existing tools in place today at the state level to provide consumer protection on AI and other emerging technology. Jake, thank you so much for your time and your insight. FBI Director Christopher Wray is warning lawmakers about the threat of Chinese hackers. He testified before the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party early this morning. China's hackers are positioning on American infrastructure in preparation to wreak havoc and cause real-world harm to American citizens and communities if and when China decides the time has come to strike. They're not focused just on political and military targets. We can see from where they position themselves across civilian infrastructure 
that low blows aren't just a possibility in the event of a conflict. Low blows against civilians are part of China's plan. Ray told lawmakers that Chinese state-backed hackers are preparing to target critical infrastructure in the U.S. That includes water treatment plants, electrical grids, gas pipelines, and transportation systems. The FBI director says the hacking operations have received far too little public focus. The Chinese regime has previously denied allegations of hacking efforts. This was Ray's first time testifying before the House CCP committee. The hearing focused on the cyber threat from Beijing. Other witnesses include three top U.S. cyber officials. And lawmakers sending a message to big tech leaders. The Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing today with some of the most influential social media leaders. Online safety for children was the topic of discussion. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham wasted no time in squarely accusing CEOs, including Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, of being responsible for social media's deadly impact. But as investigations have detailed, social media and messaging apps have also given predators powerful new tools to sexually exploit children. Your carefully crafted algorithms can be more powerful force on the lives of our children than even the most best-intentioned parent. Discord has been used to groom, abduct, and abuse children. Meta's Instagram helped connect and promote a network of pedophiles. Snapchat's disappearing messages have been co-opted by criminals who financially extort young victims. TikTok has become a, quote, platform of choice for predators to access, engage, and groom children for abuse. And the prevalence of CSAM on X has grown as the company has gutted its trust and safety workforce. Mr. Zuckerberg, you and the companies before us, I know you don't mean it to be so, but you have blood on your hands. You have a product, you have a product that's killing people. Graham went on to call for the repeal of Section 230. That's the federal law that protects websites and social media platforms for their content moderation decisions and from lawsuits stemming from user-generated content. Former President Trump's legal battles, presidential candidate Nikki Haley is now again attacking Trump for his legal woes. The New York Times reports that Trump spent approximately $50 million in donor money on legal bills in 2023, citing two unnamed sources. NTD has not verified those numbers. Haley responded to the report, saying it's another reason Donald Trump won't debate her, adding that he can't beat Joe Biden if he's spending all his time and money on court cases and chaos. According to the same report, $50 million is about how much Haley raised across all her committees in 2023. Haley also attacked Trump last week after a jury ordered him to pay over $80 million to writer E. Jean Carroll. And just on Tuesday, a hotelier reportedly said he agreed to donate $20 million to a pro-Trump group. Robert Bigelow says he gave the former president a million dollars last week with the promise to donate 20 more. Bigelow told Reuters that the million was for Trump's legal fees, while the 20 will be for campaign purposes. The owner of Budget Suites of America says Trump is being unfairly targeted in the criminal cases and that his sympathy towards the former president motivated the donation. And today, Trump is expected to meet with the Teamsters, one of America's largest worker unions. The union has around 1.3 million members and was founded over 100 years ago. The meeting comes as the economy is shaping up to be front and center in this year's election cycle. 
Trump and Biden are both expected to target union votes in a battleground states. And Trump's special prosecutor Nathan Wade reached a temporary divorce settlement with his estranged wife yesterday. A judge canceled a hearing set for today. This means Wade will likely avoid having to testify about an alleged affair with his boss, Fulton County DA, Fannie Willis. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the story. Court filings show special prosecutor Nathan Wade reached a divorce settlement with his estranged wife, Jocelyn Wade, on Tuesday. Cobb County Judge Henry Thompson signed a temporary agreement, canceling a hearing set for Wednesday. Wade was expected to testify about his relationship with Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis. Willis tried to quash her subpoena in the divorce case, but Judge Thompson refused. The judge said he would decide if the DA should give a deposition after hearing Wade's testimony first. Willis is accused of having an improper relationship with the Atlanta prosecutor that she hired to bring election interference charges against Trump and over a dozen co-defendants. An attorney for co-defendant Michael Roman filed a motion to dismiss the case earlier this month on claims of prosecutorial misconduct. Roman accuses Willis of profiting significantly from an improper personal relationship with Wade on taxpayers' expense. Court documents show Wade paid for Willis to fly with him to two different cities. Roman is also accusing Willis of using Fulton County funds set aside to clear a backlog of pandemic-era cases to pay a large sum of money to Wade. Roman wants Willis and her office disqualified from the case. Trump is also demanding the case be thrown out, saying it's been totally compromised and is politically driven. A Fulton Superior Court judge gave Willis until Friday to respond to the allegations in writing and set a hearing on Roman's motion for mid-February. Fulton County's Audit Committee is asking Willis to address the improper relationship allegations. The Fulton County Commissioner is calling for Willis to provide explanations, including payments to Wade, by Friday. A lawyer for Wade's wife says her client's divorce case is not over, with only alimony and attorney's fees now resolved. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Coming up, are explorers one step closer to solving one of the most famous missing persons cases in modern history? A company thinks they may have found the plane wreckage of aviation legend Amelia Earhart. Paris gets ready to host the 2024 Summer Olympics. Some events will take place at venues well beyond the French capital, including in Tahiti. More shortly, here on NTD News Today. A team of deep-sea explorers think they may have located the wreckage of legendary pilot Amelia Earhart's plane. The Explorer Company released a sonar image they believe shows the outline of Earhart's missing Lockheed Electra. Miss Amelia Earhart was lost in mid-ocean. Amelia Earhart set out in 1937 to be the first woman to make an around-the-world flight. She never made it. A massive air and sea search was unsuccessful. Her plane was presumed to have gone down, but has never been known whether she survived, and if so, for how long. Now, the countless questions surrounding the disappearance of the aviator in her plane may soon be answered. Deep Sea Vision, a company of underwater archaeologists and marine robotics experts, have been on a three-month quest to find the ill-fated plane. Organizing and carrying out such a huge operation in the Pacific Ocean was no easy task. Mounting an expedition like this isn't easy. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's logistically very challenging. Um, it took us 18 months from start to finish to kind of put this whole thing together. How did they even begin to narrow their search in thousands of miles of ocean? We started by examining her, her final flight. Uh, we looked at her, her uh, flight path, uh, we analyzed the winds, her altitude, all the information that we had, um, and we came up with an area that we thought was reasonable um, and uh, the highest probability for where she could have went down. The crew took a mathematical approach. They divided larger probable areas into small sectors. 
and after months of searching, their state-of-the-art submersible captured some exciting images on sonar. Well, if you look at the sonar image, there's some uh, three key uh, characteristics on it. You see the twin vertical stabilizers in the back, and you see those very clearly in the image. Um, the, uh, the, the area that we found the aircraft was super flat and sandy. Um, and so to see anything protruding above the surface uh, would be highly unusual. And then thirdly, the size of the aircraft and the dimensions are very close to what we'd expect for her aircraft. So what happens next? Will there be closure in the greatest mystery in aviation history? So the first step is to confirm it. Then we kind of curate, figure out what the site looks like, how it's sitting in the, uh, in the mud and the sand. Um, and then the next step would be, if it's possible, to raise it to the surface and then restore it. And that process could take, I mean, it could take five, ten years. It's not, it's not something that's going to happen tomorrow. The team have not released the location of the site, but say it lies around 100 miles west of Howland Island, where Earhart had hoped to refuel. They hope to return to the location soon to get better images with a deep water, remotely operated vehicle. The Paris 2024 Summer Olympics are just six months away. Venues in the capital, other parts of France and Tahiti are getting ready to host one of the world's biggest sporting events. NCD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Paris has been constructing venues for several years and will have 15 competition sites for the Olympic Games. The French capital will host 21 of the 32 Olympic sports around some of its most iconic monuments. Beach volleyball will take place on the Champ de Mars, the world-famous garden at the foot of the Eiffel Tower. The River Seine will be the backdrop for the opening ceremony. The Seine will also host open water swimming events for the first time since Paris last hosted the Games in 1924. Across the river, the Grand Palais is being renovated to accommodate fencing and taekwondo. The aquatic center near Paris will serve as the venue for water polo and diving. Badminton and rhythmic gymnastics events will take place at the Porte de la Chapelle Arena. Not far from Paris, equestrian sports will take place in the iconic Versailles Gardens. The French Polynesian island of Tahiti will host surfing. The Summer Olympics are from July 26th to August 11th. The event will bring together 10,500 athletes from 206 countries. Paris will host 4,400 Paralympic athletes just two weeks later. The city expects 13 million spectators. Four billion viewers across the world will watch the games for a total of 100,000 hours of broadcasting. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And in health news on this episode of Strong Mind and Body, we'll learn what an apple a day can really do for you. Here is Gina Marie. have found that apples can help to prevent cancer, protect blood vessels, control appetite and relieve constipation. JAMA conducted a survey report with almost 10,000 US adults. A small percentage who ate an apple a day used fewer prescription drugs. The benefits of eating apples are attributed to their fiber, essential vitamins and minerals and flavonoids. Their unique molecular compounds are thought to help prevent cancer and other health conditions. Eating an apple as a snack can also displace eating other less nutritious foods. Based on a food science and nutrition review published in June 2023, apples and apple products protect against cardiovascular disease, cancer and mild cognitive impairment. They can also help to promote hair growth, 
kill burn wounds, improve the oral environment, prevent niacin-induced skin flushing, reduce UV-induced skin hyperpigmentation, improve symptoms of atopic dermatitis, and improve symptoms of setter hay fever. And it doesn't stop there. Apples can suppress your appetite, promote weight loss, relieve constipation, and maintain a beautiful complexion. Avoid throwing away the skin since it's more nutritious to eat apples with the skin on. The skin contains more vitamin C than the flesh which can help to prevent skin aging. The polyphenol content in the peel is six times that of the flesh. And for those with dry eyes, eating an apple can also improve eye fatigue. Some of you may be concerned about pesticide residues and fruit wax on the skin. In that case, you'll want to choose certified organic apples and scrub them under warm water. As for how many to eat, well, the good old saying, an apple a day. Astronomers looking at nearly a billion stars for a decade have discovered a new type. It's called an old smoker. These giant stars are old and stay inactive for decades, fading into the night. Once they're almost invisible, they start emitting clouds of smoke and dust. Researchers couldn't see them before because they are near the center of the Milky Way and obscured by dust and gas. But this time, they used a Chilean telescope in the Andes mountain that can detect infrared light. It can shine through those obstacles. The scientists were actually looking for newborn stars, which are also difficult to detect through regular light. They're not sure what happens to old smokers after they're done releasing smoke. The discovery was published in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. And that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. We'll be back with more stories tomorrow.